Should everybody be in therapy? I suppose some people would say that no, they don't need therapy. But I think that therapy for the sake of learning and growing and understanding your hang-ups, where you come from, what's happened, how you've learned to cope with the world, I think gives us some sense of what we do and how we do things and why we do things. This is In Therapy, stories and conversations about the pursuit of mental health. I'm your host, Abagazmanz. Over the last nine episodes of this series, I've primarily engaged with individuals and couples about their experiences of being in therapy. On two occasions, I spoke to psychologists about different aspects of therapy. Kosi Gianni in episode 6 focused mainly on African psychology, while with Analysis 1 in episode 8, we discussed men, sexuality, and mental health. In this final episode, I decided to go back to basics, so to speak, in an attempt to understand what therapy is and how it works. Many of you in your feedback requested an episode of this nature, and I reached out to Dr. Melissa Card, an academic and practicing psychologist. My first question to her was, what is therapy? Therapy is a relationship um, between the therapist and the person who is seeking something in life. You know, some people don't like the word patient, whereas I use the word patient because Donna Orange, who I think is such a guru, um, has written so much about uh, people suffering. Um, and she uses the term patient uh, to show someone who is struggling. And when I'm in therapy with someone, I often see it as me working with someone to get them to a space where they feel like they are no longer suffering. So for me, it's a relationship working towards a space of not suffering anymore. And I suppose that covers the objective of it as well. For the most part, um, the objective of therapy would um, change depending on the on the modality that the therapist works from. Um, but how we would phrase it is more as goal setting. So the therapist would sit with the, the client and then work through what it is that they would want by the end of the therapy. And then that goal setting is done together with the, the patient. And they generally direct how the sessions would go or what the outcome of the therapy would be. Sometimes the therapist, um, especially if, if the therapist is seeing something else that the client is not aware of, um, they would then point out that I know that you were saying you want to work with work stresses or struggling with interpersonal relationships, but I'm seeing that there is also something from your past that seems to be um, haunting you in some way or that you're struggling with. Um, for example, I had someone um, who came to see me who said that uh, she was in a dark place and she was struggling with depression, but then decided she needed to change her work situation and which she did and she felt a little bit better but um, in the session she started speaking about um, how she lost her father when she was really young like um, under 10 and she's now sort of uh, I think she was early 30s and as she was speaking about uh, the, her father who was murdered uh, she started crying and, but she didn't think that that was something to work through and so at the end of the session, we then spoke about what she would have wanted from therapy. And then I also mentioned that when she spoke about her dad, there was an intense amount of mm. emotions there. And so I was also wondering if maybe that could also be part of, of the therapy as part of the goal setting, that maybe we work through some grief. 
around the loss of her father. Mm. So ultimately, the objective would be the goals that are set between the therapist and the patient. Mm. In my experience, every time I mentioned the number of years that I was in therapy, people would be like, Jesus, girl, like, what were you going through? <laughs> because it was a total of, of eight years. Um, and yeah, it comes as a shock to people that one would be in a room with somebody for that long on a weekly basis. So what is your um, philosophy or view on, on, on the length of therapy? Um, well, firstly, you were, I must commend you on being quite dedicated to going to therapy and <laughs> being there for eight years. Um, the duration of therapy depends on the modality. Um, and the type of therapy that people um, conduct. So some people do narrative therapy, some people do cognitive behavioral therapy, some people do behavioral therapy, some people do schema therapy. It just depends on the modality. So I work more from a psychodynamic point of view. And in psychodynamics, we look at, and more specifically, I work relationally. So I'm looking at um, how some of your past relationships influence how you engage with the world right now. And what from those past relationships, and particularly the early relationships, so in the first five years of life, how those have actually impacted on how you interpret the world um, today. And then we, I generally work backwards because sometimes uh, people are intimidated by starting um, around early childhood. So when people come to therapy, depending on what their history is, and if there is a lot of trauma, um, I generally find that they will be in therapy a lot longer because part of the work, and particularly in psychodynamics, is to help to reshape the personality structure. And so if there was a lot of trauma earlier on in life, there are certain traits and certain personality um, development that's happened that it, it can be quite maladaptive for the person. And so they end up with a personality disorder. Um, so things like borderline personality disorder, um, antisocial personality disorder, although they will pretty much not ever come to therapy. There are also narcissistic personality disorders, um, avoidant, depressive. So there's various different personality disorders, and those are the people who will often stay in therapy a little bit longer, um, and they would need to work through unlearning some of the, the things that they've learned and then to develop different coping skills that will help them cope with life going forward and in that way they might then have the personality traits so they might be a little bit more narcissistic but they won't necessarily have a disorder and the way that we um, differentiate between traits and disorder is if there is impairment in functioning. You spoke about trauma and I remember in therapy hearing for the first time my stuff being referred to as trauma and thinking what do you mean trauma? <laughs> <laughs> like what? Um, can you talk a little bit about what trauma is? Because in some ways it's it's related to um, the question I posed around the length of therapy mm. and, and people being curious, what mm. is this thing that happened to you? Mm. And in my mind, I didn't think it was trauma until the word came up mm. and then I was like, Oh, actually, and it was quite empowering actually to be able to give it that 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 name mm. that this is actually something that should not have happened. So, can you chat a little bit about about trauma, what it is, so that for the person who's sitting at home and thinking, should I be in therapy? Should I not? Uh -uh. 
Um, so there are different definitions of trauma, but we're not going to go over the textbook right now because I can't remember it. Um, so a traumatic event, people would interpret the event in their own way, right? For some people, they might go through a hijacking and see it as living in South Africa. It's not necessarily a traumatic thing. This is just what happens to everyone. Some people will go through being bullied at school and feel that that, is, that was a very traumatic event because they were beaten, they were hurt, and that they hold on to. Whereas others would be bullied at school and have just sort of like, you know, um, dusted it off and moved on. Some people go through physical abuse, through emotional abuse. And I think that physical abuse, people are able to um, see that this is not okay. Whereas with emotional abuse, people struggle to see whether or not this is traumatic or not. Um, and some people... I find have this sort of subtle abuse happening to them, which is through the words that people say or how they've been put down. You know, people might say, oh, that was a stupid thing to do. Oh, you're so stupid. You're so silly. Like, why can't you think any differently? Those kinds of things. When, pe when children grow up with those comments constantly and they still hear it as adults, it reinforces in their mind that maybe they are stupid or slow or they can't grasp things or maybe they shouldn't be wanting more than what they are capable of. And so it does sort of stunt some of the growth. And that in and of itself can actually be perceived as traumatic because it has impacted on the person's growth and development and has caused some form of um, injury to their ego. Uh, and when there is that kind of injury, in therapy we work with that. And so to package it as trauma, some people might find it empowering. Others might say that your therapist was imposing something that wasn't there, right? Uh, which is also um, a possibility because the therapist might interpret y your uh, experience, experience as trauma when in actual fact it wasn't, maybe. Absolutely. So it is something to discuss and to, and to speak about. And even if the, the therapist packages it in a particular way, you have a right to ask, but why do you see it that way? And then it becomes your choice to either accept it or not. Um, but I think that uh, a traumatic event, people interpret their trauma the way that they would want to. Um, and on a side note, when it comes to sort of trauma, sometimes we block it out and we don't remember what actually happened to us as children and a lot of people say i don't remember what happened in my childhood that for me is also indicative of something right because why do we need to block everything out um, and so was there some form of trauma was there some form of emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse that people cannot actually access and so for patients like that i refer them to some body work and there's amazing uh, work on tre it's called a trauma release I can't remember what the E stands for. Trauma release exercises, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's absolutely amazing because when we go through something traumatic, our body tends to hold on to it. And so wherever we experience that trauma, we tend to end up with pains in those particular areas. And so for women, they often hold a lot of their emotions and their experiences in their hips. So you'll find that people would struggle to walk or they might have a pain in their lower back because of what they're carrying. And so the trauma release exercises allow them to literally shake it off. You don't necessarily have to remember what the trauma was, but you allow the body to release that tension and that stress from what had happened. When my own journey in therapy started, it was not as a result of a diagnosis of any sort, just me reflecting on my life 
and coming to the conclusion that my self-worth had been eroded over time as a result of certain incidents. And that was a situation which I desperately wanted to change. And so, I was interested to find out from Dr. Card how some of the people she sees end up going to her. So the general public um, often come because someone sent them, not because they feel like they have an issue. But by someone you, need, you mean a referral by another doctor? Another doctor or family members. Okay. Um, so a family member might say, uh, you know, you've got issues, go and speak, see a, a shrink, as they would call it, or go and see a psychologist or go and speak to someone. Um, and so when people arrive, they... And, and here I say sort of like general population, um, they would arrive and say that my mother said this or my partner said this or um, I saw the GP and the GP said I must come and see you. And when I ask like why, um, the, the answer is often I don't know. Um, and then it's about trying to get them to open up about what's happening in their life at this point in time. And from there, I then get a sense of what might be some of the difficulties. The people who do know... Um, what it is that they want to work through are often people who've been in therapy before and they can sense that they're not quite balanced or they feel like something is, is not quite balanced. And so they come to therapy and say, I'm struggling with relationships or I feel like something is missing or I feel like I'm not quite moving in the way that I want to move. Um, and then there are psychologists who go for therapy. Um, and so when psychologists arrive for therapy, they're, they're often speaking about relationship difficulties or um, carrying some things from their past that might be in interfering with their therapies, with their clients. So it depends on how much knowledge someone has of what actually happens in therapy. So the more knowledge they have, the more they are able to actually articulate what they would want, whereas those who have very little knowledge would struggle and they'd often come with I'm not quite sure what the problem is or why I'm even here mm. and in public health it's even worse because um, they have no idea why they're coming to sit and talk to someone who's going to help them with what um, when they have issues of hunger poverty unemployment um, and so in public health it's a whole different ball game when it comes to therapy can you talk a little bit about about that? What happens in the public health mm. space? Yeah, so in public health, um, the the mental health framework uh, that the government have put in place allows people to access uh, health at hospitals usually, uh, and uh, well psychology, psychological help at hospitals. So at the hospitals, you'll have a clinical psychologist, interns, and community service psychologists who offer therapy, but it's very short term. Um, and short term being six months to a year. Uh, some people have three to 12 sessions. It just depends on the hospital. Um, and there are often very long waiting lists. So you're on the list for six months or two years. And also, I think in the public sector, mental health care services at um, clinic levels are also not well um, uh, educated. Uh, and so I think that uh, patients who access the, the clinic system go there for medication, they go there for checkups with the nurses, and if there is any uh, mental health difficulties, there aren't any people at most clinics uh, for them to, to access services, so they have to go to the hospitals, and the hospitals are often further away than the clinics. And so 
we end up seeing pictures in, in, in the newspaper about how patients are tied up to trees or um, the family have just abandoned them or left them on the side of the road mm-hmm. because people don't actually know how to manage or how to deal with, with patients who have serious mental illnesses. Mm. So there's a crisis in some ways in that, in that space. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially sort of from the in the community areas and in the um in the clinic areas mm-hmm. um just going back a little to the private room when someone comes in what do you see your role as being um so when someone comes into the room the initial session is oh it actually depends on the person some people arrive and they want to talk and so i give them the space to talk um, and if they feel like they just need to vomit out everything, then that's what the space is for. And I make my notes as they talk so that I can also just um, keep track of what they've said. Um, and other people come in and they're uncertain of what to say, and so they need more questions. Um, and so it just depends on what the person needs at that point in time. Often I do sort of follow a little an assessment where I check for any depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, psychotic symptoms, suicidality, all of those things. And that's purely because I have a clinical mindset. So as a clinical psychologist, I would undoubtedly err on the side of some form of pathology, whereas a counseling psychologist might not necessarily look out for pathology. They might be aware of the fact that there might be some pathology and they might um, see that there might be some problems, but it's not necessarily severe. And so they will look more at how the person is adjusting, what some of the difficulties are um, in their life, whereas I would look more for the pathology. And depending on what the person then gives me, um, I would then be able to make an assessment as to whether or not this is the space for me to help or if I need to refer them on to someone who works with um, more everyday issues, which is a counselling psychologist. Mm. I used to find in the early stages of my therapy, I used to find the note-taking a little intimidating. Not intimidating, but I'm just like, what are they writing? <laughs> Do you share your notes with like the patient? Or what, 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 what's the whole point? What's with the notes? Like, <laughs> So we, we have um, different kinds of notes. So firstly, we have uh, process notes, and then we have progress notes, right? So progress notes is what's been happening in therapy and how we've... Uh, seen the patient progress throughout the the therapy. And then process notes is what's happening between myself and the person. Um, are there some boundary issues? Uh, are there some, is there some transference or counter-transference happening? Are there some things that they're forgetting or that they um, are potentially lying about? What are the feelings being stirred up in me? So those are just notes for the therapist to reflect on, either in the session or after the session to be aware of what might come up or what to bring up next time or maybe to just digest. Um, so the notes, as much as it is about the client, it's actually more for the therapist to to digest what's been happening. Mm-hmm. You spoke about boundaries. What sort of boundaries are you referring to between the patient and the and the doctor or the client and, and why are they important? So I think boundaries are the thing that uh, separates therapy from a coffee session with a friend and uh, we have ethical boundaries set by the HBCSA where we shouldn't have multiple relationships we shouldn't be having sex with our clients we shouldn't be um, 
treating family members. Uh, we shouldn't see people from the same family at the at different times or speak about different family members' issues with different people. Uh, we also shouldn't uh, share information about clients who um, who might know someone else. So the boundaries are there to help us um, ensure confidentiality and an anonymity um, of, of the client and the patient. It also um, ensures the safety of, of the patient because when people come into a therapy space, there is inevitably a power relation. And the power relation exists because the, the client assumes that the therapist knows more and that the therapist will be able to give them advice, tell them what to do, um, and has a generally, a, in inverted commas, a better life or a better way of coping um, or is in a much uh, stronger position than what they're in. Uh, and the reality is that a lot of psychologists are not um, all-knowing and uh, and they don't sort of have a textbook in their head. If anything, therapists are human beings. And so they also have their own issues, their own stuff. And so we have to be very much aware of what we bring into the session. And those are the things we have to keep out of the room. And that's also a boundary that we need to keep. Um, because if we bring our own personal things into the session, we end up contaminating the session. And we make it more about us than about the, the patient. So the boundaries are there to safeguard against any untoward things happening um, and the HBCSA has a whole list of psychologists who've transgressed and then also just to safeguard the patient against um, being taken advantage of by by some psychologists. Mm. People are always worried about attachment to a therapist. Mm. Is that common? So if you are in therapy, initially the the relationship is like any other relationship where you just meet someone, you're getting to know each other. You're figuring out what works and what doesn't, what some of the buttons are, what some of the buttons you should press and what you shouldn't press. That's what the therapist is learning. But the patient's also learning that about the therapist. Um, and as much as we try and be quite neutral in the therapy room, um, the patients will still learn things about you. Um, and so for the most part, as much as as much as my clients will know something about me, they don't know everything about my life. But when someone um, gets to know their therapist, they do form an attachment with this person, and not because of where they work or the space itself, but because of how they understand each other, um, how the therapist gives time to this person. That one hour a week means so much to people. Um, because the therapist is there wholeheartedly listening, challenging, questioning, um, getting to really emotional things and going on this journey with someone. So the attachment is inevitable. It's not necessarily that you are going to go, that the therapist is going to go to your house and braid your hair or attend your weddings or your children's play dates. Not going to happen. And in fact, it shouldn't happen, right? After the therapy ends, different story. Right. Um, the HPCSA also have rules around whether or not we can be friends or have relationships with people. And the rule is generally two years. Um, so only after two years, after the therapy has ended two years after that, then you can sort of be friendly. Um, I don't really think that that's a, a good idea because the, the power dynamic still exists. And this, the therapist will always be someone who knows more or who helped me get to a place uh, where I feel better. So mm. um, it's not always advisable. 
but then some people do become friends with with uh, ex-clients. So the attachment is inevitable, um, but it's not to the point where you feel like you cannot exist without your therapist, right? And just on that, there's also the the notion that people fall in love with their therapist, which also happens. Um, and it's, it's, I think, something like 80% of, of patients fall in love with their therapist. Really? Yeah. So it's quite high. And, it's, and why is that? Because this person knows everything about you. This person understands everything. This person accepts you the way you are. And there's that unconditional positive regard um, and a real authenticity to want to get to know you and to want to engage with you. Um, and so, and also, there might also be some pathology from the, the patient side or even from the therapist. Um, and again, I work relationally, so that's why I look at both the patient and the therapist. Mm -hmm. Some people work where it's only sort of the patient's dynamics and the therapist's dynamic has nothing to do with the therapy. Mm. Um, but I don't. I prefer looking at both what do I bring and what does the, the patient bring mm. here. And so when patients fall in love with the therapist, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is um, anything wrong with it. It's powerful the course for the most part um, but there might be someone who has a disorder mm. you know and I've had quite a few people who have fallen in love with me who've had sex dreams about the therapy and what I've done and they come through and they say mm. that yeah and then we work through it and we, mm. we, we try and understand what that means um, it might be around dominance it might be around submissiveness it might be around being um, cared for it might be around um, expression of fantasies so it, it just depends on each person and 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 what their needs are at that point in time mm. do you ever get bored during a session with think? narcissists ah. um, when it comes to proper proper narcissistic disorders um, when patients just speak non-stop and could not care whether I was there or not that's when I get bored and I start doodling I start drawing like I could walk in and out and this person would not even know that I've done it um, so that's usually when I get bored but like I say for each therapist it's different and each um, uh, illness might bring something else out so the typical person who's depressed or like typical depression that arrives I feel very very drained and I could even start nodding off to sleep and that for me is an indication that perhaps there's some depression here wow. okay so but that comes with uh, with a lot of uh, years of practice and and understanding yourself and what is evoked in in your mm. own body so, um, I also sometimes with uh, eating disorders as soon as I start becoming preoccupied with food like and I've just eaten I'd be like oh what am I gonna have for lunch then I automatically hone in on that but potentially there is some eating pathology with this particular patient without them having said anything yes. yeah that's incredible yeah so that's the counter transference that, and that often helps us to try and figure out what's going on here mm. so I believe in counter transference and what that Which means is, what? is uh, it's the therapist's feelings towards the client and the counter transference depending on your modality of thinking can either be something that is um, evoked in the therapist by the patient that's based on transference and transference is when the patient uh, projects their past uh, significant relationships onto the the patient so I might say something and you might interpret it the way that your father had said it back in the day and then you project that onto me and behave um, with me as though I was your father 
right? That's the transference. So in the here and now, it feels like I am actually your father saying these things. Hmm. And so then the counter-transference of that might be that I feel a lot stronger, I feel bigger, I feel dominated or dominating, and you then feel dominated. And that's the transference, counter-transference dynamic. So therapists either play into it or they take a step back and make a process comment and say, when I said that, it seemed as though you um, cowered a little or maybe you felt like I was being like your father when I said what I said. Mm-hmm. Right. So it just depends on, on how the therapist works. Mm-hmm. Other th- therapists believe in co-transference, which is I bring something and the therapist uh, and the patient brings something and then we create this uh, ball of co-transference in the middle where whatever's happened between us is creating this. It's not just you evoking something in me. It sounds like you have to be very much uh, present. Um, Are there ever moments when you have to stop seeing people because you need to deal with your own ish? Mm. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. Um, So a few years ago, um, my father passed away. And I thought I was fine. I'd taken some time off and sorted out the funeral stuff, came back to Joburg, took an an extra week or two off. And then I started seeing people um, in therapy. And I'd been to therapy myself. Um, I think I had like two sessions a week for about a month, trying to sort of work through through the loss because it was quite sudden. And in one of the sessions with someone, luckily she was a she was a psychologist herself, um, and I say that because at least she could understand. I don't. I think it would have been completely different if it was someone else. Um, but I think also a lot of my patients who have been with me for a longer time would have also understood the reaction. So this particular person had said something that reminded me of of what my father would have said to me, and I just burst into tears. It was Damn. the strangest things, and it came out of nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. And that just showed me that actually maybe I hadn't worked through the, the loss or, or, mm. or the effects of it. Mm. And so um, she ended up looking at me and said, I've never ever seen you crying. But do, would you like a moment? We can cry together. <laughs> so she, mm. was, um, she was very um, uh, understanding. And I said to her, no, no, uh, this is your therapy. It's not mine. Let's continue with what you were speaking about. I'll just carry on wiping my tears as you talk. Um, because it wasn't it literally came out of nowhere where I just like the tears were flowing and there was nothing I could do to stop this. But eventually I stopped crying. We finished the session. Um, and then the following week we spoke about her experience of that. Um, and that for me just highlighted how sometimes we think we're a lot better than what we actually are and that maybe we need a, a longer time out to deal with our own stuff. Or if it's grief that we're tackling, um, the universe often sends a lot of people with grief um, to to show you that maybe there's something within you that you would need to work through. And interestingly enough, around that time, I think I had about five or six people who were dealing with uh, parents who had passed away uh, around around the same time. That's incredible. Yeah. So sometimes we do need to be aware of of what we're dealing with and to to assess whether or not we can actually work with someone who's going through something similar um, because we don't want to make the, the therapy about us. Mm. And so we have to be very, very careful um, as to whether or not we, 
we can continue or whether we need a break and, you know, close practice for a bit or go on holiday or whatever it might be. Should everybody be in therapy? Because I'm a psychologist, yes. And because I'm a therapist, yes, yes, with five exclamation marks. Um, and I, I suppose some people would say that, no, they don't need therapy. But I think that therapy for the sake of learning and growing and understanding your hang-ups, where you come from, what's happened, how you've learned to cope with the world, I think gives us some sense of what we do and how we do things and why we do things. So me learning that my overachieving isn't because um, I overachieve for the sake of overachieving, but actually because as a young child, praise was few and far between in terms of what I had done. So my family wasn't very affectionate. My parents weren't very affectionate. But when I achieved, that was when I did get the affection. So I then learned unconsciously that the only way to get affection from my parents was to achieve. And so that's how I then equated love was that achievement equals love because that was when they gave me the affection and the attention. And so knowing that I can now sort of rest easy and know that I don't have to overachieve for someone to love me. I can actually just be. Hmm. Yeah, so I think that uh, people could uh, learn from that in some way, you know, that some of our things that we do isn't because we think we're great at it, but it might have actually been engendered through how our family interacted with us. Sometimes the darkness sits on my chest. And that brings us to the end of episode 10 and also the end of the series. It has really been an enlightening journey for me as host of the podcast, and I hope it has made some impact on your life. Thank you to Dr. Melissa Card for her contribution in this last episode and each and every single person interviewed. Amanda Mashiko, Simniki Wemasala, Lieto Koza, Atinangam Songopo, Zoe Mann, Bridget Masinga, Iman Pinar, Ayub Bandekar, Kosi Giane, Anele Siswana, and Lindo Kutlengosi. Thank you to the team, co-producer Dinika Naidu, Spaman Layende, the engineer, Jonathan Kapuk, the graphic designer, and Noma Likrele, who did social media. I'm also very grateful to Zasha for the use of her song, Breathe. Her album, Therapy, is available on all major platforms. Finally, thank you for listening and engaging each time. Please continue to share it with friends and family and whoever else you think may find value in the work. I've got to breathe.